He's running late, you guys. Okay, come on. Come on. I don't even know why we're doing this. Okay. They're always out oh, my phone turning in. Oh, jeez. Really? Right now? No, we never even send out these pictures. I'm gonna be in the middle. Okay. You, Layla. You. Did you brush your teeth today? How's your hair? Okay, everybody together. One, Here we go. Smile. Two, Smile. Three. Gum. Well, hi, everyone. Uh, we have a friend from Germany. And uh, when our kids were little, he got each of them one of those little countdown deals. You know, the little advent calendars where each day you come back and you rip off uh, the date and there's a little prize or a little saying underneath or whatever. And this little contraption captures the anticipation of Christmas. Each day you come back and you tear one of those little things off and, and as you get closer and closer to the big day, anticipation builds. And as a kid, you know, you rip one of those off and it seems like it's taking forever uh, for Christmas to come. After Thanksgiving break, you know, the countdown is on, baby. Christmas couldn't come fast enough. The, the wait was agonizing as a kid. But now as adults, isn't it shocking how fast Christmas comes? You know, it's Thanksgiving and then it's just a runaway train to Christmas. And the idea of anticipation and expectancy is built into the original Christmas story. Uh, there, there was a remnant of God's people who waited and they prayed and they waited and they remained faithful and they woke up every morning anticipating this could be the day when the Messiah arrives. And so yes, Christmas has a built-in sense of expectancy and we're supposed to feel that childlike longing for that day to come. But I'm afraid we've replaced the childlike expectancy of, of Christmas with some un unhealthy expectations of Christmas. And if we're not careful, those expectations can lead us down a road of trying to look impressive and to look like I have it all together and to look like I'm sane and to look like I'm in control. But if you just pull back that curtain just a little bit, I'm not okay. I'm in over my head. And so here's today's big idea. Invite the light of Christ into your expectations this Christmas. Unfortunately, I think year after year, we get ourselves worked up with some uh, holiday expectations that are bound to disappoint. So I've created a short list of those expectations. Here, here are some expectations bound to disappoint. Gathering with my family will be enjoyable and relaxing. Everyone will be excited to see me. All who are coming will get along. I'll get to spend lots of downtime with my friends. I'll have enough bandwidth to do every Christmas activity that I want to. I will host Instagrammable holiday parties. I will have the creativity to get everyone the perfect gift. My kid will be happy with each selection. I'll stay under budget on all my gift purchases. My schedule will be sustainable and life-giving. Don't, don't you hear that list and think, oh boy, we're, we're, we're getting set up for a letdown here. And yet year after year, we often try to live up to those unspoken or spoken expectations that, that either others put on us or we put on ourselves. We wish for the best in our heads, but we know in our hearts that the holidays will never meet those expectations. And, and the flip side of the coin is even if every one of those expectations gets met, well, then we're set up for a huge emotional crash after riding high all month. And I want to just propose today that instead of expectation, what if there's a more holy, what if there's a more godly a more truly Christmassy thing for us to strive toward. You see, often expectations are motivated by a desire to make everyone happy or to look impressive to other people or to give our kids the best season ever or to satisfy our own selfish longings for nostalgia and good memories from the past. 
But what if we replace these things which can take us to a really unhealthy place with, what if we replaced them with true, authentic hope? Biblical hope is what's truly at the core of the Christmas story. And so I want to take you today to an account of Zechariah and Elizabeth in the Gospel of Luke. And so if you have your Bible or device, you can turn to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to start in in verse 5. We're introduced to this couple right off the bat. Listen to what it says. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abiha. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And so we're introduced to these two characters. And they don't know it yet, but their greatest claim to fame is not going to be what they accomplished in life. It's, it's going to be who they produced. They are about to become the parents to John the Baptist. And their story will be forever interwoven with the birth of Jesus. Now, Zechariah was one of about 18,000 priests living in the nation of Israel. And when we think about ancient Jewish priests, often our minds go to regal and holy men in robes, well-trained scholars and saints who led the religious life of a nation. And there were some like that. But by this time, there was also a whole line of priests who were less educated, small-town chaplains, if you will. They lived way out in the wilderness, away from the hustle and bustle of religious life in Jerusalem. In fact, there were words used by the higher society folks to describe this line of clergy. Roughly translated, they were called the idiot priests, the country bumpkin priests, the boondock priests. And Zechariah, if he fits in any category at all, he fits into this one. Both he and his wife Elizabeth, though, they were born in the line of Aaron. They they were born into the priestly class. They, They were essentially both preacher's kids. And they were living in expectancy of the Messiah. Isaiah had prophesied these words in the Old Testament. He said, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And they believed that there was something special coming to Israel, a Messiah, the Savior of the world. And so they were waiting. But do you know how much time elapsed between that prophecy in Isaiah and a baby in a manger? 730 years. Now, that's a long wait. Just to put it in our terms, that would be like us today, waking up in 2023, anticipating something that was promised in 1300 AD. Do you know what happened in the 1300s? Just a few historical reference points. The Ottoman Empire was founded. (laughs) The Hundred Year War began. The bubonic plague swept through Europe. That was a long wait for the Messiah. And, and, And because it was such a long wait, people were obviously falling away. They were giving up on the whole dream. They were losing hope. But not Zechariah and Elizabeth. They still had hope. And now, before I throw that word around anymore, I think it's important to establish what is biblical hope. Because like the nation of Israel, some of you today might feel like you've been waiting for God to fulfill a promise. And you've been waiting for a while now. Or maybe today you find your world falling apart. You're in a situation that seems hopeless. So what does it mean to hope biblically. Well, let me start with what it doesn't mean. It does not mean wishful thinking. It does not mean blind optimism. It does not mean, you know, cross your fingers and a wing and a prayer. No. For someone who follows Jesus Christ, hope is the confident expectation that God will fulfill his promises. Hebrews 11.1 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Biblical hope is the life-shaping certainty about the future. 
Or, or put it another way, biblical hope is living with faith now because of what you know will happen in the future. This is the kind of hope that Zechariah and Elizabeth lived with every day. You know how we can tell? Look at verse 6. It says, And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So I want to frame the rest of my thoughts here around four lessons on biblical hope from Zechariah and Elizabeth. Four lessons. Here's the first one. Where you place your hope will determine how you live your life. See, while people were walking away from God, left and right, because they thought he had forgotten them, I want you to listen to the adjectives that are describing these two, that they were righteous, they were blameless, they were obedient to the statutes. They lived every day in the hopeful expectancy of Christmas, even though nothing had happened for hundreds of years. And listen, they had every reason to bail. Things were not good in their day under Herod. The Jews were suffering great persecution, and God seemed silent. If they ever needed a Messiah, it was right now. And just a generation before this, the Roman general Pompey walked right into the Holy of Holies, the most sacred room of the temple. He walked right in, and he desecrated that space in unspeakable ways. And nothing happened to him. God was silent. Where was God? In fact, rumors started swirling that Jupiter from the Roman pantheon of gods was more powerful than Yahweh. And Zechariah and Elizabeth could remember when that happened in their childhood with their fathers as priests. Imagine the discussion around the dinner table. Imagine their dads tearing their robes as they wept and screamed and processed the frustration of a Roman general breaking every custom and every tradition and just pompously waltzing right into the most sacred area of their temple. And worse than all of that, God did nothing. And yet there was still this glimmer of hope. Well, how do we know that? Look at their lives. How do we know that they possess biblical hope? The proof is right there in their actions. They were righteous. They were blameless. They believed even in this, that God would make good. Remember the definition of hope. It's a confident expectation that God would fulfill his promises. If you want to see where someone is placing their hope, follow their actions. Let me get more personal. If you want to diagnose where you are placing your hope, follow your actions. Why do you scramble around like a maniac to get your house ready before company arrives? When all, you know, love and joy and forgiveness go out the window because the house needs to look perfect. What does this say about where you are placing your hope? Is it in appearances? Is it in keeping up a certain image? Is it about personal pride or pleasing people? Where's your hope? Why does it crush you at the deepest level when everyone can't make it to the family dinner this year due to other obligations? Is your hope in nostalgia? Is your hope in expectations? Why do you throw yourself so far into work that the last thing that you're thinking about is how to spend more time with your spouse or with your kids this year, getting some presents or some experiences that are gonna bring them joy? You're too distracted with work. Well, what does that say about where you are placing your hope? Is it in success? Is it in reaching some earning level? Is it greed? The question is, what do your actions reveal about where your hope lies this Christmas season. For Zechariah and Elizabeth, the hope in, their hope in God is obvious by how they were living their lives. So the first lesson, where you place your hope will determine how you live your life. Look at verse seven. It says, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Here's the second lesson. The bigger the problem, the greater the opportunity for hope. 
we see here, they had at least two problems. They were waiting for the Messiah, and he wasn't coming. And they desperately wanted a child. But they were unable to have a child or to conceive a child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were too old. Now, some of you have experienced this very painful reality of not being able to have children for one reason or another. It could be so heartbreaking for couples. These are two pretty big problems. Life was not roses and rainbows. In fact, today I'm not even going to assume that you have two problems. Let's just start with one. Anybody here have at least one problem? Just, just raise your hand. If you, if you have one problem, now is anyone sitting next to your problem? No, please don't raise your hand for that. You need to be smarter than that, guys. I, th I throw those in every once in a while. Listen, here's why it's important to talk about problems and hope in the same sentence. Because you need to know that hope is not reserved for just the idealists and dreamers. See, sometimes we assume that the only reason someone can have hope is because they're naive. That the, the only reason they can have hope is that they must have their head in the sand. They're oblivious to the problems around them. But that's not biblical hope. That's just being dumb. People who possess true hope recognize that hope can only exist in the midst of problems. And I want you to know that hope is for the realists too. It's for the people who are fully aware that life is filled with problems. But those problems don't disqualify you from having hope. In fact, just the opposite. Those problems are the fertile soil that hope needs in order to grow. And so if you have everything that you've ever wanted and you never have any problems, guess what? You don't, you don't have any need for hope. And also, you can never grow as a person. If everything was perfect, there would be no need for hope. Paul says it this way, hope that is seen is no hope at all. And so during times of difficulty, that is when hope can do its thing. Hope needs a problem. And the bigger the problem, the greater the opportunity to lean on biblical hope. You need to know one more detail about one of the problems Zechariah and Elizabeth faced. I said they couldn't have a baby. Well, in their day, there were some stigmas associated with childlessness. In a culture where sons were a sign of the favor of God for a priest, more than anyone else, childlessness called his piety into question. He would have been seen as a disgrace. What kind of priest was he if God wasn't even blessing him with, in the most basic of ways? And poor Elizabeth, in that culture, it was always the woman's fault. Here the text says they had no children because Elizabeth was barren. Now who knows if that was true medically, but it was certainly true culturally. And here's how it translated. She was known as the one who brought this disgrace on her husband, Zechariah. Talk about expectations. Their lives were a perpetual paradox. They had done all that was commanded by God and still God had not blessed them in the way that any faithful Jew would have expected. Yet for them, these problems, these expectations, drew out an even deeper hope in God and in his plan. Here's the problem with us. Too many of us give up on God at the first sign of problems. We, we get so anxious. Like, I want a new job, and I've been praying for, you know, a week, and, and God's not answering, so I'm giving up on him. I'm giving up on Christianity. I'm deconstructing my faith. And I'm like, these cats, dude, were in Luke 1, were waiting 700 years. You've been praying for one week. See, see, part of walking and sustaining hope is the ability to practice patience. Waiting for God is not a waste of time. You know, if we lived back then, many of us would have turned away long ago, but not Zechariah, not Elizabeth. If you had approached them during that time and said, hey guys, you know, this God thing, come on, I mean, it's, it's a myth, it's over. You know, why don't you give up on this? Nothing's gonna happen. 
Yeah, there were some glory days back there for Israel, but come on, this whole Messiah thing, the, the dream is dead. And seriously, Elizabeth, no offense, but you're no spring chicken, sister. Like, it's time to give up on this whole baby thing too. Why don't you guys just forget about this nonsense and enjoy a meaningful retirement? Because your God, if there ever was a God, has abandoned you. And if you had planted those seeds of doubt, you would have been dead wrong. Don't underestimate the living God. Look at what verse 8 says. It says, now we, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And so here, here's what's happening. These 18,000 priests, they were split up into divisions, and each division took two weeks out of the year where they came to Jerusalem, and they had temple duty for a week at a time. And every Saturday, the people would gather to pray in the outer courts of the temple, and the priests would pray with them. And there would come a point in that prayer meeting when the priests would, would move as a group into the holy place, and they would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. And then from there, they would have a kind of lottery system where they would draw out a name of a priest that would go then into the Holy of Holies, waving the incense burner and offering prayers for the entire nation. It was like a Hunger Games style thing. And today, Zechariah's name was pulled out of the jar as the tribute. And this was a high honor. He, he knew it would never happen again in his whole lifetime. And he had heard reports about what it was like in there, in the Holy of Holies. If there was a manual, he had read the manual, cover to cover, to, to know where all the furniture was, where to wave the incense. He knew exactly what to expect. But when he got inside the Holy of Holies, there was an angel in there. Now, he wasn't expecting an angel. I can imagine him pulling the, the manual out of his robe and kind of flipping through the pages going, how the, how the heck did I miss the angel part? Well, verse 12 has, uh, has the understated description of what happened. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. You think? <laughs> like whenever these angels show up, people are terrified. That's why I'm always skeptical when people come to me with stories of an angel that appeared to them at the foot of their bed and whispered encouragements and flowery words. And I'm like, that's not a Bible angel, you know, or the, or the naked chubby babies with wings on the, in the figurines on people's shelves. That's not a Bible angel. Anyway, look at verse 13. It says, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. Now, when you first read that, you think that this whole thing is connected, the two are connected. You think that the angel is saying, Zechariah, I've heard you pray for years that you and Elizabeth would have a son and now you're gonna have a son. But that's not what's happening in the text. The way this sentence is constructed actually seems to indicate that the angel is referring to the prayer that Zechariah just prayed in the Holy of Holies for the redemption of Israel, for the coming of the Messiah. One is a very new prayer, that, that, and one is a prayer that he and Elizabeth stopped praying probably decades ago. And the angel says, the Messiah is coming. That prayer that you just prayed, as you were waving the incense, that prayer has been heard. And oh, by the way, you guys are going to have a baby. Now, on a very human level, let's consider this. I mean, menopause is way back in the rearview mirror for Elizabeth. She's over 80 years old. 
And imagine that elderly woman heading into the bathroom and you're thinking, oh man, did we install the right grab bars? You know, is she going to break a hip or whatever? And instead she comes bounding back out of the bathroom with a pregnancy test stick that's green. You know, it's got the green line. And imagine Zechariah trying to absorb all this information. And and while that's sinking in for him, I want to draw your attention to, to another principle. It's that just because God is silent doesn't mean that God is inactive. Just because God is silent doesn't mean that God is inactive. God was moving. He was working behind the scenes in ways that Zechariah couldn't imagine. In fact, later on in verse 20, Luke refers to these events happening in their time. The NIV says, at their appointed time. You see, God had had this day marked on his calendar. And for all of 730 years since the glory days, God has been waiting to burst onto the scene. And if you're thinking through this, you might ask, well, what about all those you know, people who faithfully waited in those prior 700 years? But they never got to see the Messiah. And I think it's a point that's quite pertinent to us because we don't know God's timetable. But the Bible's clear that God will come through either in this life or the next life. Those who hoped for a lifetime and never saw the Messiah, they had their minds blown when they got to heaven and they were overwhelmed with his presence. All their waiting was worth it in that moment. And we too must remember that our hope in Christ is always worth it. It is not misplaced. God has not forgotten. The question for us becomes like, how will you respond in the waiting? When God is not answering your prayer as you imagined he would, how will you live? Will you believe or not believe? Will you serve or not serve? Will you give or will you spend it on yourself? Will you stay in a tough marriage or will you bail? Will you do the shady deal at work or will you maintain integrity? Will you walk through the school parking lot every day thinking, they know I'm a Christian, they are laughing behind my back? Maybe you're a college student sitting alone on a Friday night because there's too much temptation at that party and so you chose not to go. And you're not getting anything from God. Your prayers are hitting the ceiling. I just want to remind you that just because God is silent doesn't mean that he's not up to something. He knows where you're at. And it will come to pass in his time. And in the meantime, your job is to actively, expectantly, patiently, confidently hope. There's nothing wrong with you. Welcome to the club of those who have hope in Christ. We will walk faithfully even in the waiting. So will you be that unique student? Will you be that unique college sophomore? Will you be be that unique couple? Will you be that unique business person? See, the story of Zechariah, the story of Christmas, is the story of all of us. Christmas is a reminder that your hope in God is not misplaced. Even when you're convinced that God is disinterested, he still has a plan. He is moved and blessed by those who remain faithful. Your hope is not in vain. And as Zechariah is processing this idea of being a hundred by the time little Johnny the Baptist starts his freshman year in college, we, we see his human side come out. His tireless hope starts to crack just a little bit. And, and look how diplomatically he phrases this in, in verse 18. He says, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife, be careful, is advanced in years. You can tell he's a veteran husband. I'm old, but my wife is advanced in years. My wife is, how shall we say, chronologically challenged. (laughs) But unfortunately, his questioning, just that little question, flips a switch in Gabriel and causes him to react with punishment for Zechariah. And in his response, I believe that Gabriel gives us a clue 
to the last and the most important lesson that we can have about hope. Look at verse 19. It says, And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Here's the fourth lesson. It's that a hope in circumstances is flimsy, but a hope in Jesus is secure. See, Gabriel reminds Zechariah that this isn't the time to lean on human understanding. He says, let me remind you who we're dealing with here. He says these words, I stand in the presence of God. And that God sent me here to deliver a message to you. And he's making this thing happen at exactly the right time. It's in his time. This God isn't going anywhere. This God will walk through this with you. So you don't have to figure it out in your own logic, how this is all going to work out. You don't have to cross your fingers. You don't have to make a wish upon a star. You don't have to practice the power of positive thinking. Your hope isn't in any of those things. It, it's the, in the most reliable and trustworthy person in the universe. See, here's the deal with hope. The issue is not just whether you have, you know, whether you're a hopeful person in general. Today, we're not talking about becoming a more optimistic person, although that's probably not a bad idea. The issue is, are you putting your hope in the right thing? It's not about do you have hope or do you not have hope? It's about where are you placing your hope? Because if you're hoping in your circumstances, if you're hoping in your own strength, if you're hoping in your boss, if you're hoping in your wife, you will be disappointed again and again. It's a flimsy hope. You're placing your hope, in, if you're placing your hope in the, per the perfect holiday meal or, or that present that you bought your kid or, or, or making the right connections or hookups during this vacation, that's about expectations. That's about appearances and perceptions. The, the Bible refers to true hope as a living hope. And that's because biblical hope is directly linked to the fact that we serve a living God and a living Savior. The, the Apostle Peter wrote this in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 4. He says, according to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And, and so we have this living hope because you see here, Jesus is alive. He's resurrected, he's active. But more than that, because he's promised to be with us, to walk with us through this life. It's the great hope of Christmas. Emmanuel, God is with us. This, is, this hope in Jesus is completely secure because he's our living hope. Let me remind you what the most often repeated promise is in all of the scripture from God to mankind. It's not, I will forgive you. It's not even, I will love you. It's not, I will save you. It's not, I will punish you. The most common promise from God to mankind in the whole Bible by far is, I will be with you. And we are at our very best when we comprehend and embrace the truth that God is with us. It does something marvelous to us when we live in the center of that reality. It emboldens us, it defines us, it gives us a hope for the future. See, Christian hope is not for something. Our hope is in someone. The issue is not the amount of hope you can somehow conjure up, it's the object of your hope. And the hope of Christmas is that God is not distant. He's not some evil being out there waiting for you to screw up so he can zap you. He's not a deistic God that just wound up the clock and walked away. 
His desire is to be with you, which gives you a secret weapon this Christmas. For those who are dreading facing all the pressures and the expectations that we talked about at the beginning, for you who are steadying and readying yourself to go through all the Christmas motions and to look as impressive as possible and to fake it till you make it, let me offer an alternative. What if you would walk in the hope of Christ? It's a living hope, which means that he's with you. He is your strength. He is your shield. He is your audience of one. You know, one of the very first uh, sermon illustrations that I ever used when I, I shared one of my very first sermons as a clueless 21-year-old. <laughs> it's, it's perfect in thinking about the expectations of Christmas. It says, you know, we all live our lives like actors on a stage. And we play different parts and we wear different masks and we move about the stage trying to make this person happy out in the audience and that person happy out in the audience. And sometimes people cheer and sometimes they boo. And we scramble around for a while trying to make everyone happy. But one of the most important endeavors of a life well lived is when you slowly but surely, one by one, begin escorting people out of the theater. Doesn't mean you don't love them. Doesn't mean you're no longer connected to them. It's just that you're not performing your life for them. So you escort out some old friends who, who weren't good for you. Those are the easy ones. But then you escort out your boss, and then you take out your neighbors and your extended family and your, your close friends, and eventually even your spouse, and your mom and dad, your kids, until all, all that remains in those seats is just one. And you live each day, each hour, each moment, for an audience of only one. You know, in Romans 5, 5, the Bible tells us that there is a hope that doesn't disappoint. When you learn to center your whole life in a personal relationship with God, disappointments won't go away. Bad circumstances won't disappear. You'll still sometimes feel in over your head, but you'll always have someone trustworthy who will walk with you and who you can continue to hope in. Sometimes it's in the small victories where he shows up. You know, some of, if you were honest today, you'd say, hey, I, I lost hope in God. Like he's been silent for too long. And yet, your life continues to flicker with hope. You offered prayers to God this week, maybe. You thought about leaving your marriage and you didn't. You had 10 other things to do besides go, go to church today or tune into church today and you, you, you came. You thought about turning back to an old habit or addiction and you didn't. You considered giving up and you didn't. Why? Because God is with you and, and deep down, you still have an abiding hope that he will come through. And he shows up in your obedience, even in the simplest of things. One of my favorite Christmas songs includes this line, the thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices. That about captures it, doesn't it? Zechariah and Elizabeth, they've shown us today through their example, some lessons in hope and even in wearying rejoicing. They've shown us where you place your hope will determine how you live your life. And that the bigger the problem, the greater the opportunity for hope. And just because God is silent doesn't mean that God is inactive and, and that a hope in circumstances is flimsy, but a hope in Jesus is secure. And I pray that you'll be a peddler of hope this Christmas. In our physical locations right now, I wanna invite our, 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 your host to come and to move us through a time of practicing solitude and reflecting on these truths. I love you guys.